Welcome to Data Bytes, episode number 48. This episode welcomes a repeat guest, Shay Chang, husband and soccer fanatic. If you recall, he and I chatted a bit about his favorite soccer team, Liverpool Football Club, in the springtime this year. Yes, Susan, you had me on for a cameo appearance at the end of Data Bytes episode 21. In that episode, you explained how 538 soccer predictions work, along with ESPN's soccer power index rating. That was right in the middle of the Champions League semifinal last season. After the first leg, in which Barcelona beat Liverpool 3-0, before we came back in the second leg to win 4-0. That's right. So just in case someone from Liverpool Football Club is listening, just how passionate are you about the club? Well, when Liverpool was confirmed to play in the Champions League final after beating Barcelona, we immediately booked flights to England that evening. You immediately booked us flights to England, to clarify. Uh, That's right, you came along. And we witnessed the final there in the city of Liverpool along with hundreds of thousands of other fans who didn't get to go to the actual game in Madrid. Uh, The next day, we went on to see the victorious team parading the European Cup in the streets of the city. So that was June, June or May. I can't even remember at this point. It was June 1st. You will remember this date probably for the rest of your life. But let's fast forward to six months later. What are we talking about today, Shay? Uh, So today we'll dive into a little bit more about soccer or association football, as they call it. Specifically, two classic cases were statistics. We'll break these into two topics, substitutions and transfers. Both substitutions and transfers are important to how your team performs on the pitch and therefore consequently how many games they win and what trophies they end But they are actually kind of different things, right? Substitutions happen in the middle of the game. Transfers kind of are done either at the beginning of the season or middle of the season. But we're going to talk more about what these are, how they happen a little bit later on. So just want to welcome you back. Um, And as you know, we'll give you airtime as long as you can bring statistics to the conversation, no matter what subject we're talking about. Great. So taking a step back, the use of statistics is still relatively new to soccer. Would you agree? Like, Moneyball has long been this thing for baseball, and I think even basketball got its data revamp uh, before soccer did. I remember when I was starting my job search a while ago, and I saw on LinkedIn that one of the teams in either the top or second um, English football league was hiring for a data scientist. I don't think they were promising much pay. The job posting might have tried to incentivize applicants by giving them free games. Wow, that's a shame. Did you apply? A shame that I'm not there now. Um, No, I did not apply and I'm not regretful. I think I'd be fairly useless at these games. And I will say that for a long time, I was a skeptic about how it could even be possible to apply statistics to analyzing soccer. (laughs) Let's see if we can shed some light then today on what's currently being done using statistics. Shall we start with talking about how it's used for substitutions? Sure, let's go through some background material though. Um, Just in case people aren't familiar with soccer, um, this is a game of 11 players on each team where every team has a goalkeeper and 10 outfield players. Over the course of a 90 minute match, a team's manager can opt to switch up to three of those 11 players. So if we're talking about substitutions, that's exactly what we're talking about. So why would they substitute? There's um, issues, maybe players are getting tired, right? Fatigue is one of those things over a 90 minute period while you're running nonstop. Um, or maybe it's a strategic change. You wanna switch things up a little and play more of an attacking game than a defending game. That would be another example. So depending on the league, the number of players on the bench can be five or seven. Um, and those are the pool of players that can then be substitute onto the field. 
once a player gets subbed off, um, they can no longer play a part in the game. Right, and given that, as you said, soccer players run uh, many miles, sometimes up to seven to eight miles in the That's course of 90 minutes, you might expect most teams to use all three of their substitutions. But recent studies have found that many managers either do not take advantage of uh, doing that, taking advantage of their full allocations of sub, or making those substitutions too late to have a positive effect on the outcome of the game. Several years ago, there was a study done by Brett Myers on optimal substitution strategies. Myers is a professor at Villanova University and also an analytics consultant for the Columbus Crew soccer team. In this study, uh, he didn't count any extra time periods, um, which are the 30 minutes of extra time to be played if a tournament match is still tied after 90 minutes. And these were excluded from the analysis because there were so few of them. What Myers found was that making substitutions at or around the 58th, 73rd, and 79th minute marks of the game tend to have more of an impact for teams losing at the time. Wow, that's really specific. I'm going to say that I'm a little bit skeptical that those numbers are exact as they are. I'm sure it's a continuous distribution, which might have somewhat of a peak at those times. But just to summarize, the first sub making it more than a third of the game remaining, that might be a good time. Maybe making your second sub with about a fifth of the game remaining and the third making it just before the last 10 minutes of the game. That's what he recommends. Yes, roughly speaking. And it was also interesting that this research found that the positions of the players did not matter. In other words, it had very uh, little or no effect on the outcome. Most of the time, we would think that the trailing team would swap its forwards, uh, who might be tired, to, with new players playing as strikers and forwards to try to score goals. But the research did not agree with this idea. In addition, if a team was leading instead, the timing of its substitutes made little difference. So those minute marks only apply for trailing teams. Uh, it seems like the implication here is that the subs give fresh legs to boost their team's overall performance, even if those players are not the same ones who are scoring. Also, I think if you're leading, you might as well substitute some of your strong players just to give junior players some more practice time and give your superstars a rest. But I suppose there may be some concern that using up all three substitutions before the end of the game can be risky if, say, one of your players gets injured but the team doesn't have a fourth substitution to make. Yes, certainly. And there have been some tournaments recently experimenting with a new rule in which a fourth sub can be made during extra time. This rule helps out those teams where if they made all three of their subs and now they have someone else injured, that they only have 10 players left playing. I wonder what it's like from a player's perspective, if they would plan their style of play differently if they knew in advance they might be subbed off, say, around the 58th minute mark that was one of your optimal choices. Actually, there is research to show that it could be helpful to tell players ahead of time choices like that. For example, if a player who starts um, playing from the beginning of the game is told in advance that they only have an hour to make an impact, uh, this player might be more motivated to play their best during that time instead of leaving some gas in the tank only to be left unused when subbed off. Okay, so we have statistical insights about when it's helpful to sub players off and that it may actually be favorable to pre-plan those substitutions. Let's go to transfers, which is about which players teams should pursue to sign. This is more of a long-term strategic thing. 
This is what I thought was really hard to do using statistics, but we read that Liverpool has credited analytics-driven scouting for achieving its recent success. Right. There was a pretty widely circulated New York Times article published before the Champions League final, before Liverpool beat Tottenham 2-1 in Madrid, before we won it six times, you know? Okay, I'm going to stop you. You're going to keep going if I let you trail on. Let's get to the point. How did data play a role in that European victory? Basically, until recently, data science hasn't been used heavily in soccer as it has in other sports. So teams that use it have an edge and can identify undervalued players. This is because soccer itself is a very different sport, with very few interruptions during the two 45-minute halves of play. Compare that with, say, for example, baseball, uh, which has very discreetly defined at-bat and run sequences. If you think about it in soccer, you can have a situation where the ball goes from one go to the other and back without ever going out of bounds, and also no stopping from the referee's whistle for fouls or infractions. And all of this, all uninterrupted in a process that can last for several minutes. So I think what you're getting at is how do we even translate gameplay in soccer into quantifiable things? In baseball, you can say for each time that a player goes to bat, what are their odds of hitting the ball? In soccer, each time that you touch the ball, it's really different whether you kicked it forward um, at a particular angle, whether you had a back pass, or if you took a shot, or if you lobbed it. These are all very, very different ways of interacting with a ball. And if the pass was intercepted, that could be because your opponent was really strong, or maybe you had two other people tackle you. It could be a slide tackle. And in a matter of minutes, There could be a lot of people who've touched the ball, so there's just a ton of things to measure. You'd literally be swimming in data. In baseball, I feel that the individual player matters a lot more in the outcome of a game. That's your hitting ability and your ability to judge when to steal, how many bases to run. At least in the untrained eye, I feel that in soccer, a lot of the goals require much more cooperation between multiple players. And it's hard for me to imagine how to model the success of a team in a way that distinguishes the cooperation factor from the individual. And yet there's a success story in Liverpool, so let's talk about that. Liverpool began with assembling a backroom team of superstar statisticians and quantitative analysts. You have under Michael Edwards, who's a sporting director, this team led by Ian Graham, who got a PhD in theoretical physics from Cambridge and is the director of research at Liverpool. Proves that you don't have to be a statistician to do data science in a professional setting. Ian's motto basically works around this metric he termed the go probably added. How much higher of a chance that a goal will be scored from an individual action? It doesn't matter if it's a pass from your own half, a tackle on the opposing player, or a shot taken from outside the opponent's penalty box. So each action is quantified based on how likely it is to result in a goal by your team in subsequent play. Well, that sounds pretty simple on paper. It's a model that Ian worked on and polished over many years. And probably one of the ways it's most useful is in recruiting and signing new players, similar to how the concept of Moneyball was used by the Oakland. Target those players on the market who have the highest metric and goal probability added, which is different and less obvious from the more commonly reported individual stats of the goals scored or assists. So I'm going to take a step back and just imagine how one would derive this statistic. I'm going to think out loud since I'm guessing Mr. Graham will not show his secret sauce, right? You might take an entire game, splice it up into periods of play that end in either turnover to the opposing team or a goal being scored by your team. That means each period can be summarized by a success or a failure, a one or a zero. 
This is a dichotomous outcome. Then you can try to record all the things that occurred during this period of play. Maybe it's a 20-yard pass, a dribble, an attempted bicycle kick. And then you can probably look at all the players in all the periods in aggregate and using something that's a classification method, maybe a logistic regression model or something more sophisticated, you can assign a probability to each of these events resulting in a success, namely a goal. But it sounds like he's thinking about defensive actions too. So it could even be like, let's look at the probability of scoring the next 10 minutes conditional on any offensive or defensive actions you take. That all sounds very plausible. Based on what Graham has told the media, the data encapsulates every touch of the ball a player makes, as you suggested, the location of the ball on the pitch, and what happens next in the game. With the current technology, we're not talking about just tracking players at the granularity of ball touches. Players can be tracked at 25 frames per second, and that's every player on the field, not just the one in control of near the ball. And one of the ways in which data is adding value in soccer, scouting is mentioned by Graham in the Freakonomics podcast episode 393, Can Britain Get Its Great Back? Data presents information in an objective way. Uh, so for example, an awkward, ungainly looking player may have been overlooked by soccer scouts. But the data is agnostic of appearances and can paint a completely different picture of a soccer player who contributes to a high goal probability attitude. What are some examples of players that the data science team at Liverpool have found? There's Sal, of course, who was already a very good player at Roma. However, he did play previously in the Premier League with Chelsea without making much of an impact until Liverpool bought him in. Also in that same summer, we signed Andy Robertson from Hull City, who were relegated. And since then, he's become one of the best left backs in the world. This is interesting. Don't you feel there's an omission somewhere in the Graham interviews? It's one thing to identify an undervalued superstar, but quite another to take someone who's a diamond in the rough and polish them into a shiny gem. I bet they also have statistical models used to consider the goodness of fit within their playing style, as well as what feedback to give particular players to maximize their strengths and downplay their weaknesses. Of course, but I wouldn't want Graham to spill all the beans. After all, we're just beginning the Red Revival. So, I feel like we've given some cool ideas for student projects about modeling soccer player quality, or I suppose we should say that Graham has given us those ideas. If we quantify actions on the pitch and try to tie those to goal outcomes within a reasonable and well-defined time frame, be that actual fixed time periods or periods of play, we just might be able to rate each player's effectiveness at particular actions like goal kicks, tackles, close range passes, and so on. At the end of the day, it is easy for us and other fans to say these things, as we're not subjected to the same spotlight pressures as modern club managers are nowadays. If the football uh, manager game has taught me anything, it's more work than fun with the multitude of decisions too. Yeah, we played it on the Stadia recently, right? By the way, this is a simulation game, football manager, that is supposed to put you in the managerial seat of a soccer team. And you have to deal with all the things that managers have to deal with. Signings, transfers, substitutions, motivational speeches, press conferences, and all your players are just people with a ton of stats, a ton of numbers on them. So I guess you can use those numbers to put together an optimal team. But tell us, how did that go for you when you played it? Right, so after playing uh, for about an hour, I don't think it qualifies as a video game, since there's even more emails to read in Football Manager than I have to for my real job. What emails are we talking about? 
There's scouts who report to you and they demand a response. There's players who may doubt you and have to respond to that. There's the media who want you to give answers to interview questions. There's literally an inbox uh, in the game that looks more crowded than my Gmail inbox of action items. Yeah, probably not a game to play on Stadia for all you guys out there. Um, but you did tell me some kid played the game so well that he scored a legit job with a soccer team, right? Yep, this game mimics reality so well that if you can stick with the mundane and unglamorous side of football team management and do it well solely based on statistics, you too can land a job as a data analyst for a second division club in Serbia. <laughs> Thanks, Susan, for inviting me back on Databytes, and you'll never walk alone. The typical Liverpool sign-off. I get it. <laughs>